this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfeller with I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here with John, one of our colleagues who was working with us to build a peer mentorship program at the Restorative Community Coalition. And I'd like to introduce him and ask him a couple of um, general questions about what are the trends that he's seen uh, in the marketplace since the COVID crisis sort of went aside, things are sort of starting to get back to normal. And you've been working in peer counseling for a while now, right? Yes, I have. Okay, my name is John. I live in the city of Longview, Washington, and I'm a certified peer counselor while also having an agency affiliate certification to be able to work with the different populations I do. Um, And I'd like to share three areas with everyone. I'm going to talk about peer mentorship, behavioral health field, and then what it is about being an employment specialist. Something totally different from the general temp agencies or what you get at WorkSource, um, what we call, it's called supportive employment. And so I'll go into that. But um, an opening, Joy, if you don't mind, I like to talk about, you know, what peer mentorship means and what it looks like. Sure, because this is a this is an evolution over time as we've gotten more familiar with the challenges we face in our society. So go for it. Okay, and so... And beginning, when you talk about being in peer mentorship, peer mentorship, the basic functions of a peer is someone with lived experience. And when and it's lived experience in recovery. Now, what that recovery looks like, it could be um, for me, it's in and out of jail, in and out of jail from juvenile to prison, multiple stints in prison. Um, I was just re- recently released from a 10 year stint in prison from 2008 to 2018, um, all from various crimes. And so I have that, what we call lived experience. The addiction of it was my decision-making. I wasn't, I wasn't on drugs. I wasn't, my family wasn't starving. I wasn't struggling for money. It was just addiction and not caring if I go to jail, just bad decision-making where I was addicted to going to jail. It was nothing for me to go to jail, come up, live up in there for a couple of years, get back out and do it all over again. So those losses, those missing moments out of kids' lives, It was in the furthest of my mind with the lifestyle that I was living. And so talking about things that I've seen since I've been out, did a very, um, quite a few jobs. I had one career before I came into the peer mentorship. And one of the things I learned about being a peer when they first hired me, um, the owner said, oh, John, we're so lucky to have you. You changed your life. Now you're going to help others change their lives. And so a nickname around our job for all us peer counselors we're called hope dealers. And wow. what a hope dealer, yeah, hope dealers. And that's the nickname. So when you put that in into our computer systems for the job only, you know, all the peer counselors come up because we're all under the hope dealers label. And what I found, especially since post pandemic and COVID, is now that every place is open, um, no mask, and things are gotten back to normal. I think it's only one place the 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 
SSI office is one of the few places to still make you wear a mask. But other than that, people are out. And what I found is, you know, behavioral health and mental health was didn't have the platform that it has today. Um, what I've learned today is, you know, so many of us are taught, you know, oh, don't see a, don't, you don't need to see a mental health. You ain't, you crazy or, or, oh yeah, I just, I know why you see a mental health because you're crazy or the, the term retarded. They've taken that out the vocabulary now, but but you've heard those terms and that's, it's so much more to mental health. It's so much more, you know, with anxieties, um, PTSD. And then what I learned from RCC with CPTSD and the different acronyms and the different conditions that's being diagnosed by far the furthest one is bipolar, but some people don't even realize that they are bipolar. You may hear a song or a joke about it, but a lot of people, are unaware of what that is. And it's, and it's all detrimental to everything. One of the studies I'm doing and what I'm writing up is about, you know, the unit they have. And, I, and I, one of the things, I want to share that too, because what they call it, it's, it's called um, um, the Lone View, the, the police department in this county has come up with uh, a crisis intervention team. And what that means is when you get, when the cops get called to a certain scenario, certain situation, there's no weapons involved, even if it is a weapon involved. After they deem the security, it's not all about jail now. It's about talking to the person to see cognitive where they're at mentally. Because not everyone is in a frame of mind to be doing what whatever it is they're doing or whatever situation they're in. And when you have a peer to go along with that mental health, the peer is that person with that lived experience. Don't have the different college degrees of what a mental health professional does, but has that lived experience licensed by the, the state, whatever state it is, because now peer counselors are, are nationwide. And once you get that certification, like certification in some states, license in some states, um, the concept of you giving back of yourself to help someone. And in doing that, it's a, it's a, I've been told it's a self-fulfilling job. You know, it's not the get rich kind of field. If you're looking to get rich, Get into mental health and behavioral health and peer count. That's not the field you want to be in. <laughs> so, what, so what you're saying is that the stigma that used to go along with having trauma or PTSD or issues has like shifted because people are aware that there's a lot of folks coming out of COVID who actually did experience the lockdowns. They experienced the isolation. They experienced the grief. They've experienced large amounts of, of uh, I call it civic trauma, but it because it's caused by civic conditions or social or economic or, or court or just restrictions and inability to go talk to people and grieve and deal with the, the losses and the deaths that happened, losses of businesses, the shutdowns of so many things. And so what you're talking about is that the public is now aware of this thing and there's a certain amount of compassion and there's awareness and they're shifting in the way that law enforcement and behavioral health people are doing business today. Is that what you're telling me? Great paraphrase. Exactly what I'm telling you. And it's funny you bring that up about death because during pandemic time, people had loved ones dying and they still couldn't be around them. There's so many people that put so many people in the ground or cremated that they didn't get their proper grievement. Like you just said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. From sports athletes to um, TV actors to people that's in politics. Yes, indeed. Mental health has definitely taken a shifted field. 
And they brung along those people that's been through those same scenarios and situations by bringing peer mentorship right along with it. Um, one of the requirements for the field that I'm in to even receive peer mentorship, you got to be receiving mental health. That's oh. a requirement. Yeah, that's a requirement for the company I work with. You can't, um, oh, I just want a peer counselor just to help me. No, you need to get a, a, a mental health therapist. And then along with that mental health therapist, then comes that extra help of a peer counselor who's probably going to see you more than your mental health clinician, who's probably going to go to the, if you got to go to the DSH office, if you have to go to the Goodwill and pick out clothes, it's going to be that peer mentorship person with you, helping you navigate through whatever. Maybe you, maybe you got anxiety being in crowds. Maybe you don't know how to advocate for yourself, but that peer is going to embody that and show it by actions. That way you can learn it and see it for yourself. And not that he's better. It's just he's been there where you've been and come up out of his recovery and can show you how it can be done just for you as well. So when mental health comes along in the behavioral health field, the peer mentorship comes along as well. It looks like so you got a question. So it's actually more like a partnership thing. It's almost like a buddy-buddy system, if you will. Define that. Help me make that make sense. As having it, a buddy. You know, it's having yeah. somebody to walk with you through these things that might be stressful. In a professional setting, yes, yes. I mean, there's still the boundaries. There's still the the HIPAA laws where, you know, there's still the when you said buddy, that's why I wanted to clarify because, you know, you 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 generate um, a dynamic with that person. That is true because not every peer is a good fit for every peer. Um, right. So whether it be male or female, skin tone, or sometimes that that fit for who that person's peer may not be a good fit for that person at Got that it. time. And so when you said buddy, I had to, I had to, I had to think about that. No, the boundaries and said, yes, it is like a buddy system because when you get a mental health therapist and you have to ask, can I have a peer counselor as well? And sometimes you have, when you do a, like when I do my public disclosure and let people read my story, I have to, I have to disclose why I'm qualified to be a peer. A person reads my disclosure and before they even set me up here, they're required to read. I got a, I have a stigma on minds where I require everyone to read my public disclosure and ask me one question. I don't care to make sure that they read it. So, and that's my way, ask me one question. And so that's a requirement for me when you take on being, when I'm gonna be your peer, because I don't like to see people sign things, not understanding what they're signing. I've been done like that my entire life. Um, went through a lot of different ordeals in life, not understanding what my signature means, agreeing to stuff. You so, bet. I, so I make a point to say that. And in the behavioral field, and the biggest thing I, I can share about that is you have to meet a person where they're at. You know, we can't, um, I don't know if you ever heard the cliche, you can't beat a, the guy sitting in a, a fancy car Cadillac down there sitting with the homeless. You got to meet them where they're at. So you walk up with a backpack. You, you, you cop a squat with them. If you got them, yeah, you just meet a person where they're at. If they at the gym, hey, I get some time, you talk to them at the gym. If they're out there sleeping in a cardboard box laid up against the wall and want to talk to you, you meet them where they're at. You know, different peoples in different areas are in different situations in life. Awesome. So I know that you were talking with a uh, colleague when I when we connected up for this conference call. What kind of situation um, do you want to interview him maybe on this call right now and give us an idea of who he is or what? Yeah, what I, I, would, yeah I, would, I would definitely I would definitely take the opportunity to do as much. So. He's also my brother in my faith. His name is Wesley. We've been, we are in the same faith. We've been friends. We probably got almost about 10 years in now ourselves. 
Uh, we were good friends. We happened to live together as well. We were going to do it the last time, but we let a bunch of other stuff and women get in our life and took us down a rabbit hole. But um, he's also just recently released from prison. And um, and he has a story, too. And I've told you before I, he wouldn't mind giving an interview, but this would be a perfect time for that to introduce you to Mr. Wesley Phipps. Hello. Welcome to the call. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And what I want to do is I want to take a second I need to take a quick break on the conference call right now, and then I'll be right back to ask you a couple questions. So let's take a quick break um, for a commercial break, okay? Okay. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our Restorative Community Coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center Project, or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at therestorativecommunity.org. Welcome back to the call. We're here with Wesley, a um, person who has recently, in the past year or so, been released from prison. And you've had some experience trying to get jobs, working with new jobs, figuring out that it's very difficult for people with a, a felony history, especially if one is related to um, violent felony. What's that like? Tell us just a little bit about that. Well, you know, the thing is, is uh when you do get out and I mean, you get out and, and you're trying to make that change in your life and you want to make things better and, and you got to restart, uh, you do run into some uh, uh, some problems because of your past history. You know, I do have a violent felony. Um, it's isolated events, uh, only violent felony I have on my record. Um, and uh, it was just going to different jobs, even jobs that I've worked at that I've had experience with that I felt that I could have went back to. Um, it's just when the background check came, it was just one of those things, you know, a, a lot of employers that don't, um, they frown upon violent offenders, you know, when it's best when to deal with assaults. But uh, the thing is, is that I didn't stop. I didn't give up. I did uh, go through, I had employment specialists to try to help me out, to navigate me with different things. Um, fortunately, I was able to uh, find a private owner uh, that owned a business that uh, was willing to take a chance for me and and, and that was a chance on me, which was a great thing. And, and, and basically, it was, it was based on um, what I did while I was in prison. I utilized that time to better myself, better educate myself, put myself in a position where I am employable. So, and, uh, but it, you do go through some trials and tribulations when you first get out. And even when it comes to housing, you know, uh, you uh, come to housing as well. Uh, when you got a violent offense and you, you get out, uh, I know there's probably a lot of violent cylinders that are going through homelessness right now, just simple fact because of housing. Um, right. And uh, and then you go, so you want to break that barrier. Fortunately, I'm in a town that uh, has has uh, uh, resources, a lot of resources. I was at the community house where I was able to work with a, a peer support, uh, employment specialist, and so a housing specialist. And, and community houses, it's, it's called Community House on Broadway. And it's, a all, it's like an all-in-one homeless shelter it's one that's not even heard of i mean i i personally believe that every city in the state of washington should have it because a lot of i've been i've been i lived in pierce county i lived in olympia and usually you go to these homeless shelters and you go in you got to be out by five o'clock or in by six and you got to be out and you got and they let you roam the street you got to come back at night but with this place it actually has all-in-one services so they do have requirements for you to stay there i mean you have to program and be involved in their programs and the programs are basically to help you succeed. So uh -huh. when you get in there, 
and it's a 90 day program. You know, they let you, it's a 90 day program, but you go through a mental health uh, evaluation, you go to SUD evaluation. And then once you go through those evaluations, it's one of their requirements. Uh, and then they set you up with services based off of your needs. So, and then they meet with a housing specialist and an appointment specialist. And these are all the things you go through. And then they, and, and they don't pressure you to get a job right away, especially for those who are uh, uh, in active addiction and trying to get clean. They want you to focus on getting clean, uh, getting a recovery program, uh, getting your mental health up. Uh, and then, uh, then they lead you on to the employment and then they find you housing and they go, they know your complete background and stuff like that. So it kind of, it kind of, for those who are looking to get out of that homeless status, such as I was, uh, it, it was a perfect place for me. It got me in a, uh, got me stable and got me heading the right direction. And you don't see a lot of those places in this town, in the state in, right. in at all, you know, and, uh, I, I say, I, I think people should come out and, you know, uh, get a, uh, yeah, definitely uh, use this uh, program as a, uh, as, as a learning tool to, to implement in their cities because you'll you'll see because it helped those who want to help themselves. Now that not everybody want to, I'm not I you know not everybody want to stay homeless. Not everybody want to not be homeless. You know some people just like to be homeless. But for those who are out there that are struggling that really want to get the opportunity to bring some stability in their life and change their lives, it was a great program for me. So and, so and and helps out those. So what you're what I just heard you say. Let me see if I can reframe that. What what I heard you say is that cities, if they could create these kinds of housing and recovery education support services, so that they could basically reorient you and your life and your reactions and your behavior, so that you're functional when you finally get out and can find a job and could go to work you have like a new foundation, a new, a new pattern to live into so that when you've got the job, you can keep it. Is that Correct. what I heard? That is exactly what I said. You said, okay. you said it right. <laughs> you so, did, you did, you, that's exactly right. You know, um, and that's the thing too, because, uh, you know, that's exactly right. Because you, you know, uh, you definitely got to be in the physically, emotionally, and mentally stable to, uh, you know, to work and to continue working. And, and that's the biggest thing, you know, especially when uh, those who are facing, a, uh, coming out of addiction and homelessness, not everybody a homelessness and an addict, but, uh, but they, it does numbers does show that majority of people that are homeless have mental health issues. Well, so, and part of the mental health issues comes from being homeless or some yeah. of it comes from being homeless. Some of it comes from getting an arrest. Some of it comes from, prior addiction or childhood traumas. Talk to me for a minute about trauma and and the how could a parent, let's talk parenting, okay? Because a lot of times it's not all about what happens after all these things happens. It's what can we do to stop people from going into a situation where they end up in addiction or before they end up in an arrest situation what is the input that you would have to help parents navigate today after all the stress that we've gone through these last few years of COVID trauma, all the things mm -hmm. we've been talking about, what would you advise parents? What can parents do to help their kids or their grandkids or whatever deal? I, you know, I, I say first is uh, first of all, it's open communication. Uh, when you communicate with your child and make them feel safe, 
that they communicate with you to you about each each and everything that they're going through without any judgment, without any uh, punishment or anything like that. That's a key thing. Also, if they if they and then that way, when you communicate with your child, you can they can tell you the traumatic events that they may have uh, uh, experienced that could have been that happened outside the home, say in school or whatever it may be. Uh-huh. And then you can take the necessary help that they need. As far as count out therapy, therapy and, and counseling and stuff like that. Um, and I was, it was just brought to me, you know, like juveniles, like they should have a program where, uh, they teach, uh, children how to, uh, communicate effectively and stuff like that with the, with each, with peers and with parents, that's another thing to do. It's just that the overall communication, you know, uh, letting, you know, and, and, and being aware and being present in their lives, you know, because, and then, and for those who are, uh, for parents that have had past addiction problems, you might want to talk to them about your past. And about what uh, what uh, what you went through, and being um, transparent about them, and let them understand that you don't want them to go through that path, and that if they, you know, because let them know, because with addiction, it is hereditary. If your parents an addict, chances are, if you use drugs, you're going to become an addict. So, a lot of times, you know, people uh, do change their lives, and they get, you know, parents get some clean time, and then they have kids, and they have an, a past addiction problem that they've overcome and they don't discuss that so it's like communication is really a key because once you communicate you may have your feel your kids feel safe to communicate with you being present in their life uh stuff like that it could definitely uh uh shift that trajectory in their life so what you're saying basically is transparent communication being able to talk to each other being able to talk to your peers, that's what John was talking about, but also being able to talk to your parents and your children. This is the the pattern of addiction may actually go back to the pattern of not being able to communicate. And when you can't communicate and you feel hurt and there's trauma, then the lack of ability to communicate compounds then the problems compound, the addiction or the drugs or the escapism or you know, the habit pattern of not talking compounds mm-hmm. and then it gets worse and worse and worse. And if you simply went back and started talking again, in fact, yep. talking, it could break the pattern. Yes. Awesome. Let's go back to uh, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. And I want to go back to John about um, what's next. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with John. Are you a member of Patreon.com and enjoying our podcasts? As a patron, you can support the production of the I Change Justice podcast series. You can also support the Restorative Community Coalition, get our news, updates, and access to our digital training programs downloaded directly to your email address on a regular basis. So welcome back, John. Talk to me about what it takes for you to be in the profession that you're in. What does that mean and what does that look like? So one of the other areas, I'm in the behavior health field. I'm a peer mentor. But also when you hear about services, I'm a, my the company I work for is called Supportive Services. And I was spoke about earlier the reason why it's supportive. And when you heard Wes talking about all the services being in one, that's what they call um, a community integrated place for services. Um, because there is a SUD department. There is a, um, a more than a few, the one he talked about, but there is a mental health professional on site. 
They also have what I was going to go into now, what we call supportive housing and supportive employment. And what that looks like is we help you get a job. And, and once you get the job, it's not like, okay, your job on to the next. Supportive meaning we help you get the job and then we help you keep to maintain that job. And sometimes that's what that looks like is reaching out. If you go into a construction field, you need to get steel toe boots. But then we're hitting up resources to find out where we can get you a pair of steel toe boots to help you keep this job that you have. Um, I've did I've I've did many, many of food handling cards. It only costs ten dollars and they they pay me back. But it's ten dollars. And I sometimes I forget having gotten most of the money I got. I didn't help somebody get a food handler's card. But if that's what's preventing you from getting this job, oh, you got to be a have a uh, 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 you have to have a valid food handler's card. OK, we can get that. That's not an obstacle. It's ten dollars. Sit online and take the test. We can do that. And so and those different avenues. And so as being an employment specialist, I wear three different hats at the job. I'm a peer counselor as well, but I'm also what you call a supportive employment specialist and a supportive housing specialist. And those are all three different hats because if I'm helping you look for a place, well, then I'm not talking to the place about a job for you because clearly you have a job. We're looking for a place for you. Same way, vice versa. Um, I do have a model about, you know, I've half done it, not that it hasn't been done. I've gotten people who couldn't get into a, or one of the shelters because of animals or certain crime kept them from going in there, got them a job, lived in their car for two weeks until they were able to get their paychecks and then went and rented themselves a room. And so there are those success stories out there like that. And um, they couldn't get into the shelter for various reasons. Like our homeless shelters, Suboxone, they, it's a, it's, that's not a super red flag, but people on Suboxone, they don't want them in the shelter because there's kids, but then we have another shelter. So it's, it's a variety of different things and different usages that applies with that. And when you talk about the employment specialist aspect of it, like you heard what Wes said, getting a job, you know, sometimes people don't understand that, you know, people that without felony convictions getting jobs and people with felony convictions trying to get jobs, we're competing with them. And so we have to set us up for And sometimes it's that much harder when you got a felony conviction looking for a job, competing with someone who don't. You know, you see the commercials, you know, I mean, it's supposed to be a nationwide soon. Um, we raised the box because the debt has been paid, but it hasn't got there. Mike Rowe, who I want my scholarship, is a big proponent of that. He's spoken uh, before Congress in it, and someone made a complaint about me winning the scholarship, and he spoke up for every inmate that's ever went behind bars. Um, even when people dealing with the homeless, you know, they're getting their life together, getting clean, they're fighting for recovery, and they need that job to occupy their time as an employment specialist again. You meet that person where they're at, get the information, you build them a resume. Sometimes I've worked with clients that has never worked a day in their life, but I build a resume off what they've done in their life. If they've washed dishes, you've worked in cleaning dishes. You've taken out trash. You've worked in janitorial. You sweep, you mop, you vacuum the floor. You've done what janitorial do. You probably haven't done it at the industrial level where you got a big street sweeper, but you've done that. So, so when you talk about building a, a resume, it's not that you go make up a resume. It's that you learn how to speak about the work that you've done in yes. a way that employer could understand what your skills are and how you could actually meet the needs of the job. Is that what you mean? Yes, exactly. And be valuable to the company. <clears throat> that you know, One of the things we forget about resumes, you can make them all fancy, but when you, when you build what they call a directed resume, you're building it. You're trying to uh, um, basically sell yourself. You're trying to 
you know, you want to get the interview. And if some of them you have to go through a second interview, you're trying to earn the right for that interview to explain, to talk to an employer, to give you that chance. I see. So that is really a very different skill set to be able, you know, it's like when you're a mom, I know that when I was coaching some women that were coming out of, you know, being a mother, you forget that as a mother, oftentimes what you're busy at is scheduling appointments, picking people up on time, delivering things, being able to buy insurance, being able to shop, being able to, to think about budgets. I mean, there's a lot of things that you do know, but you don't necessarily know how to write them because as a mother, you never wrote a resume. <laughs> and they're all organizational skill set women have. And plus they are super gifted at multitasking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have learned that kind of thing. So <laughs> what else would you like to say about that? Is this whole employment specialist and supportive supportive uh, housing, is this a, a change? Is this a trend in America? Is this just something on the West Coast? Is this well, what, well, what, what is West spoke about, what West spoke about is that um, model. And the model that Longview have, they happen to have a, this is the most, this is the, I should have started off telling you about this. So the company I work for has a, has a faith-based central. Um, the owner who started this was a pastor of the church. And then his story goes until he realized the homeless in the community. So he wanted to do something about it. And so he, this model he created was getting his hands on the homeless shelter. And mind you, the same program and company I worked for, when I came through that same homeless shelter, when I got out of prison, uh, there was one housing specialist. There was one employment specialist. And there were only three or four peers. And so now the expansion I see, this is 2023, you know, three facilities. Each facility is community integrated. And what that mean by that is there are multiple services at one location where between the physicians and the therapists, information is shared through our system to where you can better help, better serve the client. It's all client choice. Um, no one is, um, maybe some people got quarters, but um, no one's put no gun or handcuff anybody to come up in there. You know, it's all client choice. You got to want the help. You know, change is hard. Change is hard. But it doesn't happen by accident. You know, that's a choice that each person has to make themselves. And you get that too. Person, um, a lot of people sleep by the shelter, you know, trying to get away from drugs and whatnot. Um, I'll touch briefly on this fentanyl thing that's going around. And uh, the miseducation, because it's so cheap to get, is the more you get of that, your tolerance goes up. So the more you want of that. And it's, it's and I got more coming on. I just want to tease up just a little bit of that. There is more information I will go into that at a later date. Wow. But, yeah. And with also, let me say this about supportive housing. You heard Wes, Wesley speak about that as well. You know, with felony convictions and things to that nature, you know, on, on how you can rent. Um, it's that much harder for those that have sex offenses because they have zones they can't be in, whether it's a park, whether it's a school there. And, uh, you know, it, and it's, it's the same for each one of them that has to register. Um, on the state, on the sites out here in Washington, with your arsonist, you're, you have to register. If you're a kidnapper, you have to register with those charges. And um, both of all of them are considered what they call violent or serious violent crimes. And like you said about finding a place, um, these owners have management companies. And so the management companies, and they'll tell you right on application, we go through a third party for background, you know? And so they wanna absolutely do certain screening. And some just know we don't want anybody to ever had a felony conviction. They have that right. 
Uh-huh. And so it's that much harder. Um, and then the most of the population we work with, keep in mind, coming out of addiction, coming out of homelessness and off the streets, and they've done the services, get their light back on track, but credit. And it can destroy you with places because some places they look at that as well. So it's it's hard to find someone willing to give you a chance, like he said, you know, that look, I'm gonna pay my rent on time. Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay the bill, you know, whatever so, that bill is. So one of the things I it sounds like you do also is coach people on financial management and business, like managing their own financial situations so they can build credit. Is that one of the things yes. that you help people do? Yes, we have we have we we have specialists for that too. So when you take the money management pro group class, it teaches that um, I got a program that they want me to do. And I love the program. I complained about it while I was in it because it made it cost me to come from work to, to get to the program. But I had to do it to get my house. And the um, program is called How to Be a Good Tenant. And they want me to facilitate it. But my schedule hasn't allowed for me to book a time for to get that group started. But I have the manual. I took the class, my Kels. And what I learned about how to be a good tenant helps me be able to um, give motivation interview to people who do get to meet an ownership, a private owner, or if the rental agency wants to talk to them and meet with them, you know, but they look at the credit, they look at the criminal history before you get that conversation and it's different. And each time, and each time, each situation is different. I know two people have the same story, the same journey, and the same issues with being able to get into rent a place. So what's, keep mind, of, about rent. what's that? I said, mind you, we're talking about rent. Some places come with shared living. You know, that's a different kind of living. So if you were to give me a, a short story of something that really made a difference for you that makes you want to even be, you know, more dedicated to the work that you do, what are the things that make your life happier as a mentor? Because you're working in a lot of areas where people have a lot of challenges. So it's easy for some people to get depressed or sad where what's the reward for you i told eve this tonight i said keep your mind where it's at and protect your peace um not everyone is going to love the job they do but when you're able to find something and you're doing something you love and loving what you do it's hard the fact that they pay me for doing what i do is a blessing and amazing just in itself because when they first offered me the job i thought she was joking I told her I didn't mind. I come in there and volunteer for what they did for me in my life. Mind you, like I said, that same shelter that Wes was talking about, I got out of prison and went to that same shelter. The same program he's talking about, I went through all those services as well, right there in a homeless shelter. And so if there was one thing I could, what it changed for me was, it's the lived experience and knowing that if you put in the work and make the changes, you know, you're building your foundation. You know, because if you fail in the plan, you planning to fail. No, failure to plan is planning to fail. <laughs> I got to say it, buddy. So if we were to wrap up what, you, what we're talking about on tonight's call, what else would you like to talk about that the audience would like to hear? Because I think being able to talk to somebody and hear from people who really have lived through the system, what would you like to say if you had another 10 or so minutes? I would like to... Just reach out to people that like the different organizations and networks that just what the restorative community coalition is doing. Um, like I said, my story goes back to when I was in prison right in Irene when it was the Wacom Reentry Coalition and the different ideas she had back then that we were trying to incorporate in prison to make it easier for people, but we didn't get it. The fact that the restorative community coalition still continues 
and don't have all the big funding like all the different organizations have, but the caringness to still, you know, ready to go out there in the streets. Um, somebody's in a search room, yes, you can stay here. Um, to put in the work to help people, you know, for the, just that, just for the simple fact of love, kindness, generosity, humbleness, meekness, different, different faiths, and none of that. And it's like just the kindness of it. And people don't understand what the story of community coalition by having all these, by being able to incorporate and have like what our resource list. People don't understand what a person in a crisis or going through a situation, they had a resource list of a number they could call where it's going to be a live person. Because mind you, phones now have you go through so many prompts before you get a person. And that's and that's decided if they don't push a button and say, leave a message and somebody will call you back. You know, what Restorative Community Coalition is doing is, is, is showing how people care. It's real people. It's real people doing real things. That really does matter. I, I know that it's been very stressful. I've talked to a couple of different parents who have had to deal with uh, the deep trauma and the deep distress of having family members who get lost either in the homeless systems or they get lost in the mental health or they get lost in addiction. And the number, I mean, that the habit pattern of government to be closed and to require people to come to get services during daytime hours as or on certain times or certain days or certain, you know, by four o'clock, they're gone. And yet the distress comes up later on in the afternoon or in the evening or in the middle of the night. And being able to get access to services is really important. What is the most valuable thing you could tell a parent yourself working with um, people in your family or neighbors or people just dealing with this deep amount of trauma, homelessness, economic stress, how can you help each other? Um, I've had many situations, Joy. Um, I've left the job and couldn't help nobody. I've left the job. I left the job one night where two women were in the car and had children and they had no place to go and they had to stay in the car because they didn't want to let the dogs go. The shelters don't allow you to take animals in there. I mean, I've, I've had that to where I, there was nothing to do. I had a, I had a individual get kicked out of a hotel because of, he invited friends over, got back to usage, then put him in another place, got to using, and his mother is just distraught, like, John, what do I do, what do I do? And don't want to go to detox, you know, don't want to get themselves clean. They want to, it's like, it's, 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 it's unbelievable they will make that choice. But when drugs, and this is something I, this is something I say to all clients, when drugs is involved, the mindset is different. The mindset is different. So you're dealing with a, a mindset of somebody who's not, don't have the full usage of their mind because the drugs have the addiction of them has, has incorporated the mind. So you're dealing with stuff. You're dealing with so many different kinds and types of stubbornness. Like you, you would think it's just like, you're not getting through and you're really not only hard. So, but on that hand, putting them in prison, isn't going to help them put them in jail. Yeah, isn't going to help they, them. They've, they've come, they've come to a slight semblance of that. Now I got to say slight because, the way they still lock people up. They still, the way they still asking for more money for different jails and different prisons. And, but they have come to a sense to where, you know, not everyone who commits a criminal act is not a criminal, you know, and, they, and they, they've, woke, they've woken up to that. So that would be, you know, to be appreciative of what the RCC is doing up there. Like when I heard the story about the, I just told my roommate tonight, the, the detox center, 30 something beds, but only 14 of them used. Y'all got like seven cities in your county. That makes no sense. 
Yeah. Now, per capita, it makes no sense. You have a facility that can hold 33 people. They can come off the streets and get themselves clean so you can run the next few of them through there. You use 14 beds. Why? Well, it, it, part of the problem here that we deal with is we've got constant barriers. You have to meet this qualification or you have to meet that qualification or you got to meet this qualification or you have to meet it between these hours or this kind of time and yeah. people don't qualify. And so there are people left homeless and left to need and want treatment and they can't get in. Yeah, and when I, give out those, when I give out those resources, that's why I felt like the, like the most important thing I could say and leave with RCC is having that resource list because nationwide there are all kinds of crisis hotlines to where those lines that you see for the crisis will always be answered by a person. You know, they got the different ones for different addictions, suicidal, and they all wait for RCC to have one to talk to a real person. And it's different because you can call those national hotlines, but you're going to speak to somebody that's in a different state. You're going to speak to somebody that's not in the area. But being able to talk to somebody that's right there and you can look down on that little resource list. Maybe let me call this number. You know, that little resource could be life-changing sometimes. I've seen it, not sometimes. I've seen it change people's lives because they remember, oh, I got that in my wallet. And they made the call. You know, I got a, I got a crisis phone I carry that I'm that I didn't got I didn't had the phone for six months, and it's a homeless crisis phone, and but it hasn't rung. You know, we have other lines, but I've got one of the primary phones over there, and it hasn't rung. But if it rings, I got a resource list of what's going on. I'm gonna find out some information to see how I best can help them. So, not every time you get to help somebody, you do you do have the, in this field of helping. RCC is gonna come in. Not everybody we can help, but we put forth the effort. And God bless our efforts of trying to help, you know, having information like what Peter's doing, getting just having the information on who to call, how to call and who they can call to help a parent, anyone that's dealing with someone that's going through a crisis. So that's something. So that's a goal. That is a real goal that the RCC is working to be able to do. I mean, we do have a, a call in number and people can call and talk with us about various things. But being really able to have a fully staffed call-in number where people can talk and get help and get help to find resources, like actually having like not just a call-in number saying, yeah, I know you're in crisis. That's okay. Sorry, we can't help right. you. I mean, that's not what you're talking about. What you're talking about is really having a human being that has access. It's like a hub it's like a yeah. hub for communication and services and being able to really help people go where they need to go to get the needs that they need to have met today met. Yes. And I would, you know, this includes being able to have shelter in freezing weather. I mean, being able to have, yes. um, you know, group housing even or emergency shelter not have it be you've got to meet this standard and meet that standard and meet this standard but just if it's freezing out and you're on the edge be able to provide some form of safe sleep and yeah that's what we water. do let me share let me share this with you so during the winter season this year before we close up whoever's the last person in the office you know if anyone shows up here's where the warming shelters are tonight this one is open. This one's not open. We gather up the information because we're going home. Like you said, our hours are up at five. You know, right. we're going home. And we and there's there you may see somebody said it many a times I've done it. 
walk out there, see somebody shut it up next to the building and they don't know where the warming shelters is. We get them you know, with sex trafficking. Girls don't got no ID, no nothing, you know. And out here in the predatory land, you know, it's just you see it and not having the information. And you're right. It's exactly at a hub to where you pick up the phone. And I got a person out here. They don't they have an ID. They don't have ID. But this is what's going on. Is there any warming shelters? Anyone taking you doing intakes right now? You can get that information. You know, my company, they just stopped doing um, intakes after midnight. So now you can't go to the, the two shelters we have in this town. You can't go after midnight. And what they found is. As uh, uh, hard as it seems, but you can't get the right information at that time. You don't have other staff to look up. You don't, it's a lot of information, and then you can't just let anybody into a homeless shelter where there's kids, there's vulnerable people already there. Sure. So, so part of what, what the problem is, is that you've got organizations who are trying to help. Their needs need to be met. The people who are in the streets, they have needs to be met, and having the bridge. The bridge between these places is really a need. And that's pretty obvious. Yeah, it is a need. It is a need. It's not a want. It is a need. Yes. And do you see any probability that this is going to get any better in the short term? Well, I, I have a faith. I'm one of Jehovah's Witnesses. I, I know we live in critical times. It's going to get <laughs> way worse. It will get better. But listen, um, I, I, I see, I can see improvements where you know, but people ain't got so just people ain't got so far from just being people. It's 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 scary to look at because you can't, like I said, you can't have a good conversation with somebody. You know, you know, texting and technology. But when you do it, you can see the blossom. Like if it's thirty people, you know, that one person you're able to help, that one person is gonna make the difference to change their life. They made that choice. Whether they gotta go to this group, they gotta go do this meeting, they gotta go through these hoops, and sometimes you have to jump through them hoops. Like that class I told you I'm about to facilitate. I had I was working in a different county. I had to come back for this one hour class so I could get the funding to be able to get my own place. Was I mad? Absolutely. Every Tuesday I was let mad leaving work at one o'clock. But I went back from my job to show up at the homeless shelter to get this class that I needed to do. And so the, and then go ahead. So the real bottom line of the message that you're saying is. We have to build systems that work. We have to build systems that work with humans who understand why people fail and why they need certain suit and help at certain points just to help them get across the line so that they develop new behaviors, new resources, and new skill sets that make them employable in the marketplace. Yes, you give them hope. You help them hide, whatever that looks like. You know, you even if it's just, hey, come take a shower, put on these clothes. That's why our job, we never turn down donations. Yeah, we know people want to get stuff out their garage just to get rid of it, but we don't turn down donations. We got volunteers that wash them clothes that come in there and we hang them up and people utilize them. Oh, nice. So thank you so much for uh, stepping forward, stepping out, telling me what's going on. Is there anything else you want to close with at this point in time? Keep your mind where it's at. Protect your peace. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate you being here. And uh, audience, you'll be hearing from him again down the road. He's going to help us build some of our mentoring programs as time proceeds. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Joy. Have a wonderful evening. 
Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.